0: Hello and welcome to RJ Metrics Buddy Time. I'm your host, Bob Moore. Every week on Buddy Time, we meet with another RJ Metrics team member to learn a little bit more about who they are, where they came from, and what it's like to be a member of the RJ Metrics team. As always, we want to extend a big thanks to Alex Klieger. His awesome Softball Diaries podcast is available on iTunes and was the inspiration for this series. Very excited today to be meeting with our guest, David Williams. We're going to talk to him in a sec. First, I just want to say a reminder to everybody, you can record your own Buddy Time podcast if you want. Just talk to Ryan Williams, uh, who has access to the recorder, and you can interview your buddy for RJ Metrics Buddy Time and build up this library. Also, as always, big thanks to Alex Klieger, whose Softball Diaries podcast inspired this series. Definitely check that out. It is Softball Diaries on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Uh, With that said, very happy to introduce our guest for today, uh, David Williams. How are you doing?
1: Good, doing well. Uh,
0: let's get started with just, can you tell
1: us uh, your title and how long you've been at RJ Metrics? Sure, so I my title is uh, Content Marketer, so I'm on the marketing team focused on content, and uh, I actually just celebrated my one-year anniversary about two weeks ago.
0: Awesome, congrats. Uh, it has been a hell of a year too, has
1: hasn't it? <laughs> it absolutely has, yeah. I've, uh, learned a ton but it's been it's been a great year yeah can
0: you talk a little bit about maybe your typical day at
1: work sure so um uh it definitely varies in terms of like kind of stages of of what we're working on and a lot of it is project based so um you know at different times if i'm working on a specific project for example the benchmark reports were a big uh, chunk of time this year Mm -hmm. um that we spent on that and um so if i'm working on a report like that typically there will be uh, you know a week that's kind of condensed of where almost the entire day is focused on doing edits or revising or writing or taking that time. Um, my typical day now is mainly uh, where I'll come in, in the morning and I've kind of now been um, taking over a little bit more uh, looking at the blog and handling blog content and mm-hmm. sourcing blog topics. So. I start my day usually by uh, looking at what's on the calendar, um, looking at the blog, what's on deck, um, and we've also just started to put in place regular metrics that we're checking on the blog that we've, we've always kind of had high level. Yeah. Um, I look at that, and uh, and then we I basically check and see that we got everything in line in terms of anything we're publishing and what the promotion uh, opportunities are, and that sometimes um, goes hand-in-hand hand with other content marketers depending on who's really putting it out, but it's just kind of a check-in. and. Um, And then chunks of my day are then usually spent working on some type of uh, content um, piece that's usually in different stages, so for example, this morning I worked on a second outline draft of a post that we're working on with Jen Lim that's going to be, you know, going through another phase of edits, Um, and then the second half of the day I worked on um, the data science roundup, which will go out this uh, coming weekend. Um, and then there's another part of, so and then jumping into a, you know, another piece of content that's kind of in another stage of uh, production of some kind. And so it's usually jumping between different pieces of content. Um, not too much meetings or things like that, I'm usually just focused heads down on something. Great, I love hearing that, uh, <laughs> not a big fan of
0: meetings. Um, the, so are there pieces of content that you are the most proud
1: of that you worked on in the last year? Does anything jump out at you? Uh, sure, yeah, so I um, I think I'd have to, I mean, the the, the benchmark reports that we've done, um, I, I guess it defends at different levels of, of, of pride. Uh, I mean, our first benchmark report was, um, they've all been intense labors of love and are very, very collaborative, so it's not something that I would say, you know, this is... My project, they're a hundred um, percent, you know, written through by multiple different, you know, people and touched on multiple people. Um, the early ones were before we had a full-time data scientist. You on our team, so um, those were even, you know, different in process. But um, uh, I think, in terms of the success of the first one, uh, compared uh, based on organic traffic and and what's really sort of developed around that, is um, is something that's exciting and. I think my piece of pride that I take to that is in the very initial stages. We were sort of talking about the next version of the e-commerce benchmark report, and um, Janessa, our director of marketing, has sort of given me an early um, opportunity to look at researching around it. And one of the things that kept coming up was sort of framing it around growth specifically, and really um, like almost from an SEO play, just sort of using that as a term that we were going to kind of target it towards and how we were talking about it. and that seemed to that seemed to really pay off. That was a lot of interest around that specifically, not just, you know, e commerce benchmark, but really the growth of e commerce and, and what's happening there. Um, and then I guess I would just add the data science roundup was something that's sort of uh, a passion pride point of mine, I guess I'd yeah. say, because it um, my projects for getting hired here was basically a version of that. Uh, so uh, almost a year later, there was some sort of form of, of, of actually being able to do it and roll it out in some fashion or another. And that's something that I'm uh, obviously continuing to learn about and hoping to refine and you know, sort of improve on. But um, but that's uh, something that I feel exciting that, it's, that it seemed to have uh, some traction.
0: Yeah. How many people have signed up for that at this point? Uh,
1: at this point, we are over... Twenty, I think we're pushing almost 3,000 on our list. That's incredible. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, we... Um, and this is relatively new. It's been... Yeah, yeah. a couple, two, maybe, so, I mean, October... Well, there's there's been, uh, I'm working on the 11th one of them. So okay. there's been 10 yeah. of them so far. Um, and, yes, that, uh, that yeah, the initial kind of interest in that, and, um, you know, that's what I'm sort of focusing on now is how we continue to build that uh, that list of people that are subscribing to that. But, um, but in that short period of time, it's been exciting to see some of that. Cool. Um, So uh,
0: if that's your typical day at work, what's your typical day after work?
1: Uh, That um, is... I, I well, I, I have been more recently going to uh, the gym, uh, which in the winter time I, I try to run outside in the uh-huh. summer time. Um, when you're at the
0: gym in the winter, are you running, or are you doing cardio stuff or uh, are you so, lifting?
1: So that's the thing, it's funny, I actually, I just recently joined the Bellevue, yeah. um, but last year I was at a gym on South Street and I ran uh, into Chris Trav there uh-huh. like in my early days kind of talking about it and um, I was miserable every time I was there because I hate the treadmill and I hate everything about the treadmill and yeah. I'm not really looking to do much else. Um, so uh, I was sort of not excited to necessarily do another gym this winter, but um, I actually decided to go in and swim because the Bellevue has a oh, swimming pool. Yeah. Um, and I, as, as a kid up until I was like thirteen, swam. I hated it. I hated everything about it. Actually, but uh, um, I decided that that would maybe be something that would kind of be interesting. So it's it's it's, now, it's about two and a half weeks, um, and. I've gotten sort of uh the the first couple of days I swam, you know, the first couple of times I swam four laps and you know, thought I was going to have going to cardiac arrest yeah. and uh reminded how actually hard it is. Um and then I read this whole blog post and downloaded this book on this whole concept called um uh doggy paddling. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's it's uh Yeah, that would probably be better. But immersive, some kind of immersive swimming thing, which basically, it really did actually change my whole perspective of like, oh, I'm swimming the wrong way. And Uh it's now been that much more enjoyable. I assume
0: that's not immersive, uh, literally, Yeah, as all swimming is. And
1: I think it's totally, it's not immersive, but there's an eye that I I can't remember the name of it. Um, And there's actually, there's, unfortunately, I'm not a big, I don't, well, not unfortunately, I don't... I don't follow much of Tim Ferriss' stuff but there yeah. is a Tim Ferriss speak, like thing about this about like how he learned to swim and he definitely embraces this uh, thing and it actually was helpful because I had these videos of where I was like wow I do not look like that when I'm in to pool it's okay. basically just I try very hard in terms of the amount of strokes to get to the end and uh-huh. you're supposed to you know you recognize that the body moves through water uh, with much less effort and you just kind of focus the way you're, it's 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 oh wow of, it's interesting so it's, it's, you're, you're not thinking it thinking of it
0: as much uh, as a workout as it is about getting there in the most efficient way possible and that actually
1: ends up being the best work yeah, exactly yeah exactly that's the idea yeah and that's I mean even just counting strokes was was kind of uh, you know new to me when I thought about the, right. like, that's how you sort of start and I, I think The first 25 meters, the first time I did it when I counted swimming my regular way, I think it was like 60 strokes and you're supposed to be at like 25 strokes. Wow. And then so now, like after doing it, I think I got to like 30. I'm not at 25 yet, but, uh, um, but which is, yeah, anyway, it's interesting. So uh, all that being said, I have not worked out once this week. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, so that's, um, and then, and then uh, after that, uh, my wife works at, um, uh, the uh, new co-working space, Industrious. Uh, just oh, cool! Where is it? It's on the corner of Locust and Brock. Locust, I think, right? It's um, is it in the Land Title Building or it's on? That's the corner that has like the post office on one corner. And- yes. Yeah. It has. Um. It, it's right above a like a it's one of those like a small bank, and then uh, the entrance is actually on Locust, I think. Okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm still. It's actually. I've lived in Philadelphia as a surgeon. I still. The street's still uh, confusing, um, but uh, it's it's uh, it almost connects to the Bellevue, like from a building perspective, uh, okay. it's on that like same block uh, gotcha. kind of thing. But um, it's a cool space. Yeah, a lot of you know new Philly startups are there. And, so, and
0: what so. what's the company she's in?
1: Uh, it's called ApprentNet, It's. Um, I've heard of this.
0: I think I get their spam. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I get as I as I
1: speak to our content marketer, I get their uh, targeted marketing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which that's interesting. I Yeah, because they don't have. Um, they don't have a ton of it. They, don't, they, they do. Like, I'm yeah, sure no. I
0: met somebody at some event and opted into okay. something. Uh, yeah.
1: So, uh, what do they do? They are... Um, Obviously, their content
0: marketing has not, has not stuck with me. Yeah, no.
1: They are video-based uh, skill training. So yes. actually, yeah, I remember this. They, um, so, she co-founded it with um, her law professor, actually. And oh, cool. it was originally used for law schools, and it was the whole yeah. kind of concept was behind it, was uh, there is um, a deficit in practical skills when you leave law school. Um, and so that that kind of spun off into sort of its own functioning thing, and now it's been turned into a company that focuses on corporate training, and uh, they they do teacher training, corporate training, higher ed, um, and corporate. And so it's uh, been kind of fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's, it's they recently just merged with a company in San Francis San Francisco um, a little while back, and so uh, they've you know they 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 had a uh, an, an intense year. Very Ill, you know lots of stuff happened. Um, uh, with yeah a lot of a lot of things going on <laughs> um they well they merged they have i guess yeah my their ceo was actually uh passed away in the amtrak accident oh so there was a lot of attention awful. around that time as well um and then shortly after that I merged with a um a company in san francisco and uh so it's been like an amazing kind of period of challenges and also uh, some really positive stuff that's uh, happened in the last couple of months but um do you, uh, when both of you, uh, you know, get
0: home at the end of the night? Uh, I can imagine coming from two different startup environments, both of which, by definition, have their share of challenges on a regular basis. Is it? Uh, do you guys talk about work with each other and kind of uh, you know uh, have a, a
1: venting session or is it uh, you want to focus on other stuff and just? Uh, we definitely talk about work, yeah. yeah. We talk about work a lot. I mean, I think uh, we're both fortunate that I think we both love what we're doing. So yeah. it's kind of, uh, it makes it, I think, you know, I think other people look at us from outside that are in the startup world or kind of and think like, oh God, they must be miserable. Like <laughs> um, from, I think, both of our perspectives. Um, yeah, it's exciting. And uh, one of the most exciting things I've always talked about is just, you know, um, being an RJ and seeing how RJ has developed over this year in terms of, you know, lessons to take back and talk to her. Because um, yeah. they're obviously at an early stage and uh, that's that's been, you know, it's an it's a really exciting thing for us to talk about. So, yeah, so we do... We do talk about it and that kind of, I know I never got to really the end of that question of what I do, but we usually end up after that. I usually meet her, there. she goes to the gym as well. Oh, cool. Um, and then we end up uh, in some form of, you know, eating on the couch, ordering and cooking. Um, yeah. And typically I try to put PBS on if I'm there first and mm-hmm. usually uh, ends up getting changed to uh, The Voice or some other TV <laughs> show. <laughs> um, but both of that usually involves us with laptops on our lap at the same time.
0: Kind yeah, of
1: um, I mean, that's the that's the American dream days. it's really, <laughs> Right. Can't ask for much more than that. What's on PBS? Uh, I will I, I I do try to watch the um, the News Hour. That's like the one thing. So like if I'm home, that's what I watch first. Um, but I love Frontline. I think that's like my favorite thing on television in some ways. I know I'm going to sound like really boring here. Sort of. I, I like a lot of other TV too. But um, but yeah, I love Frontline and uh, I do also like I I like the Nova stuff and uh, so yeah. with the on demand I usually try to kind of flip through. But it usually I usually get like 10 or 15 minutes in before. Um, Emily sort of starts to feel sad or depressed about something. I a chicken, and it's like, okay, I won't do this to you. Um, so, Uh
0: it's it's so it sounds like you're a runner and and you're a swimmer. Uh, do you do races?
1: Do you? It sounds like you've got two out of three for a, a little yeah. triathlon action. Yeah, no way, no way for a triathlon. I um and the swimming I would yeah, yet to call myself a swimmer other than the early um, stuff and the running is all based on a ruse that I originally uh, put on my wife when I was uh, <laughs> courting her, telling her I was much more into running and races. Is and, she a runner? Uh, she is. Yeah, um, and I think both of us are kind of uh, so. So I've ran, I've never run a full marathon. I I don't have any desire to run a full marathon. Um, I've ran maybe four or five half marathons. Um, and even saying that out loud is shocking because before I met Emily, I would not have considered it. But I kind of uh, you know, one of our early conversations with I was like, oh yeah, I'd love to run. And I was. It's actually kind of funny. I was in New York City still at the time, and uh, it, there was before there was even like. So this is when I first started running in New York it was I literally used the odometer in my car to you know to actually gauge like what distance my running trajectory was <laughs> yeah um, and I remember like you know a year or two after after running this thing that I thought was five miles it turned out that it was actually like you know two and a half once like Google Maps or like one version of that like kind of came out and I was like oh I'm uh, not as much <laughs> as and it wasn't very often run but um she sent me up for And
0: running. your car your fuel efficiency
1: is not as good as you thought <laughs> yeah, it was exactly that too yeah it was I think my mom's car Remember specifically but uh um so yeah so my running ability was was exaggerated a little bit when I first met her and uh she signed me up for a half marathon however though early on in those wow. days and uh there I um I ended up. Uh, they ended up using smelling salts on me at the end of that race.
0: Really? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, it was. But oh, you finished.
1: I did finish. That's pretty it impressive. Was, uh, it was frightening, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but since then, it, it has become something that I do just purely from the mental standpoint. It's something now where I do if I don't run, I kind of feel like oh, I need to run, sort of thing.
0: Um, I. Uh, I want to explore this smelling salts day a little deeper. <laughs> this sounds interesting. So, yeah. uh, what? And I've run a, a three or four half marathons, okay. and also never a full marathon, and no desire to do it. So, I am, yeah. I am all with you on that one. Um, the remembering my first, I think there was a. There are these major mental blocks that you encounter along the yeah. way, and your your brain kind of goes from. I'm excited, I'm really doing it, to I'm gonna die, to yeah. wow, I'm really close to the finish, I'm finally gonna finish, to oh wait, there's still five miles yeah. left, I'm not as far as I thought I was. Did you
1: go through a similar progression yeah. and kind yeah. of how did that climax with you passing out? Yeah, well so the the original thing was, it's funny because uh, part of it was I had no concept of races. I don't know, I just never, I didn't have any concept of them. And so literally my vision of this, uh, and I was still working in New York, and I remember I flew in from a work event in Chicago to Nashville. And part of me, I think, up until then, was thinking like, I'm not really gonna have to run this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I had not run more than six miles. Uh, I, I hadn't trained at all. I, I didn't had. I ran six miles once in the three months prior, um, and I was an athlete in college early on. But I, I, just long distance was not something that I did ever. So I never did like long distance. So I was really like the first time I ran anything that long. Um, but my vision of a race was far scump in Alaska, mm-hmm. like that. Like that's what I was like. Yeah, yeah I could get into that and. Uh, to be, you know, to realize that it's people on the side of a road with cowbells and sort of screaming at you was uh, not my cup of tea. <laughs> but it was my wife; she like thrives off yeah. of that. Um, so there was that early kind of realization. I was like, I want these people to stop screaming at me and like, you know, why aren't they running? And shut up! Like <laughs> that, was my, that was my initial reaction. And I remember um, after a couple hills that she had blatantly told me that were there were not many of uh, I remember Uh, thinking like this is going to be scary and um, then being very embarrassed and telling her like please go like just go uh, (laughs) Uh, and her being very concerned and being like no no like I'll stay (laughs) because thinking like this was not going to end well for me Uh, and luckily it was probably a good thing um the distance I again also no concept of like distances at the time like I could have what a mile was kind of thing so I hit that wall like I think Five or six different times of wait, this is almost done. Wait, this is now nowhere near done. Um, I was talking to myself. She too likes to tell that story, so uh, that, that that happened at some point. Um, like having a conversation, or like uh, pepping I, yourself up. I think it was like a combination of like pepping myself up, and I think just you know gibberish. I yeah. think it was just I, the the wheels were coming off. Uh, yeah. yeah, like full on, And so, um, how far into your relationship was this? It was pretty early. It was uh, it was. I mean, maybe maybe four or five months maybe six months at the most kind of thing yeah, so, so
0: that's a bold move on her part so you, you talk did. a big game about running uh, <laughs> but clearly you and her have not done a lot of running together yeah. uh, and she signed you up for a half marathon without you knowing
1: and yes yeah well that's that's her standard is, is kind of and since then it's still continued of where it's sort of mentioned of, uh, oh there's a race going on and I literally will have an like an e- email invite in my inbox wow. the a yeah. day and I'm like oh uh, so <laughs> that was that was kind of how that developed um, I do like to to say that I did not talk up my running as much as she like, to, like likes to believe but I, uh, I, I probably <laughs> I, you know I don't know she says that I was pretty clear that I was like a big runner um so yeah that was it was. I think it did set the tone for a lot of our relationship but uh, but all kind of in a good way I think uh, the fact she maybe stayed with me was uh uh, a reassuring thing, and uh, I think the fact that I actually did finish was maybe something Yeah, that, like, uh, she was kind of... Uh, that's,
0: uh, it's impressive. Yeah. It's it, it's it, no it, joke. I don't, I don't know, know if yeah, that's the actual. <laughs> but it's, it's <laughs> right. something, yeah. How, uh, they just have smelling salts, like, at the ready, at the Yes, yeah, so I guess it's not, I'm sure, I'm sure this isn't the first person it's happened to.
1: Yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't, like, completely unconscious or anything, but I just remember, like, uh, like being very hazy, and being like, I I was telling her, like, no, go away, and she was like, let's, like, there was a medical, uh, like, tent or something, and I was Uh like, let's just talk to him, and, like, I kind of, like, went into that tent, and then just, like, uh, like, dropped, and I didn't, like, I don't, I didn't fully pass out, but I remember, like, kind of, and I remember the, like, young woman, like, whatever, coming up to me, and, like, waiting Uh and smelling salts, and me just being, like, and then I think I think they maybe thought I was in worse shape than I was, I think it was just complete. Anyway, yeah. So after that, I kind of just sat there and they hydrated me and like I was like relatively okay. But uh, it was also, in my defense, it was like, I think 98 degrees in Tennessee or something like that. Oh, it was in Tennessee. Yeah, it was in Nashville. Um, and so the heat was insane, like there was. So uh, I like I like to, I don't think it would have mattered much if I was, uh-huh. I think I'd be in pretty similar shape, but, uh, but the heat was not uh, helping. Uh, heroic, heroic. So how, how much longer were you two together before you got engaged after that? Um, we were t- together for a little while. So we, uh, so I'm, I, we dated uh, while I was in New York, uh, maybe for a full year, a little more than a year. Um, and that's when I was still working at Boyd and Mortar, kind of figuring out exactly what, what we were going to do. And I knew pretty early on that uh, it was going to involve her, but she was finishing law school. Um, so even her kind of exact situation was we were still separate, sort of figuring out. Um, and I did I guess I moved down before she finished law school. Um, but uh, we but then we lived together here for a couple. Of, so it was maybe three years that we dated uh, yeah. before engagement. And I'm bad at the, the calendar. Um, <laughs> it all the yeah. The, She's gonna be listening before. to this later yeah. and uh, yeah. yeah they're and gonna have haul it off. But um, it was a couple years that we we still gotcha. dated. I think we kind of knew we were going that route, but it was uh-huh. just also uh, yeah. And were you down here in Philly when you got married, or? Yes, yeah. When we got married, I ended up um, I was de- we were down here, and uh, um, yeah, I'd been here for a couple of years, um, and and yeah, and got engaged, and uh, and then we got married pretty quickly after that. We've we've been married um, just we got married in twenty thirteen. So right. yeah, but so we so yeah, and I, I moved down here at the end of two thousand and nine. So we were um, and we were engaged for a little less than a year. So, awesome. um, well, you yeah. two sound like a pretty awesome team. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, um, yeah, I'm a lucky guy. Definitely.
0: Uh, I am curious. Uh, I want to kind of talk about the history of your career because it is very interesting and has a lot of <laughs> cool stops along the way. Um, maybe we could start uh, all the way back with college and
1: your yeah. college experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I grew up in Southern New Jersey, and I uh, in what town? Morristown. Oh yeah, yeah. Is it, or Glassboro? Is I grew up in Glassboro, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeep Burrow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, which uh, my sister went to Rowan, so I was I used to go down to Glassboro like when I was in high school. And oh, my yeah? mom actually graduated from Glassboro. Uh, she was a teacher, so it was, like when I was still like a teacher yeah, college, teacher like. college. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like I've spent more time in Glassboro than I otherwise would. But um, uh-huh. um but yeah. So I, I grew up in Morristown, and uh, I went to Rutgers originally, um, but it was based on a lacrosse scholarship. So I was actually going there as a, um, uh, which. My, my is that Rutgers in New Brunswick yeah New yeah. Brunswick um, so I've kind of always wanted to write in some fashion or another and I always knew that and even at that time I knew that and it was sort of an interesting time because I'm obviously dating myself here and I'm, I feel like one of the older people here but uh, I am um, it was actually this is going to sound funny but it was I was finishing high school on the tail end of uh, the Clinton Lewinsky like scandal mm-hmm. stuff going on and so yeah. journalism was something that I was like a lot of people were disgusted with and sort of like kind of and I had this journalism class in high school and I remember like I always wanted to do some creative form of the writing, but I was kind of like, I'm, I don't want to do journalism, which yeah. in hindsight, there was a lot of ignorance and sort of like uh, complete um, naiveness about like how kind of it was looked at. But um, but so uh, my main goal was honestly to not take out loans. And that was like 100% of kind of what like I looked at um, because I was like, if I'm gonna try to be a writer, uh, that's gonna be the one thing that I'm gonna have to sort of figure out. Um, and so I the scholarship that I got to for sports at Rutgers was what um, ended up me going to Rutgers. I wasn't like the most enthusiastic about going to Rutgers compared to some other schools that I'd looked at but being an in student and all that kind of stuff it was uh, seemed like the best decision at the time. Um, I did not love it. I was there for a year and a half um, and then I was potentially going to transfer to a school in San Diego and still go to school out there UCSD and um, and actually play across uh, but I kind of decided at that point I, I wanted to really find something more creative focused. Yeah. Um, so I transferred to the new school in New York City. Oh, great. Um, and then that's where I finished college. And went. I was so I was, My sister lived there, which um, made the, the, the ability to go to school in New York um, very easy. I kind of mooched off with sisters in different stages. So I was subletting room for $500 when I was yeah. going to school in New York for, uh, you know, it was a liberal arts, but it was for creative writing. And mm-hmm. so that was kind of, um, again, the intention there was sort of to, you Take out the minimal amount of loans as I could, uh, but that's what I studied in. that school.
0: I've heard of the New School before. I don't know much about it. I can you tell a little bit about what it yeah. is.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. It's um. It's it's. It's better known for its grad school and also for, uh, at one point, for the Actors Studio. So oh it's, yeah, that's yeah, probably uh, that's was, probably where I heard it. Yeah, it was most famous for James Lipton, yeah. like at the time, that was all. The Actors Studio was part of it, but it's also Parsons School of Design, uh-huh. uh, which I think is now since um, separated from it, but when I was there, Parsons School of Design was under the umbrella of the new school. Um, As well as Mannes College of Music, Um, but it it has an interesting history. It started primarily. uh, It's called the New School for Social Research, and it started basically for um, Jewish academic exiles from Europe, uh, you know, uh, close to the World War II time period. And so, um, it's the grad from a grad school perspective. They have a lot of big kind of uh, uh, like foreign policy based and um, and. you know, like Bob Carey is also one of the big things they're known for. He came in as the president Mm -hmm. towards the uh, tail end of uh, my time there when he was, um, you know, a former senator of Nebraska and all that stuff. And so there's always been sort of these political, very liberal ties to the school itself. Um, But uh, from the undergrad perspective, it kind of was this conglomerate of Parsons students, Menace College of Music students, and then the actual new school itself, like undergrad program. So it was... uh, It was interesting. It was not the typical college Uh, experience. Did you
0: find what you were looking for there?
1: Uh, In a lot of ways. I think the one thing I wanted to do was build up uh, some kind of rhythm with writing, and I did. Uh, The interesting thing is, I mean, I took more courses related to, like, poetry and and those kind of things, which I didn't have as much of an interest into. Um, But, you know, more towards the tail end, I think I was more drawn to um, things related to... uh, uh, like political science and those kind of things um, so so I did I mean the, the, the big most beneficial thing that I got was all my teachers were writers were people that were figuring out how to you know make it as writers and doing you know the actual work of writing um, and at the time that was kind of what I was also uh, sort of craving versus some of my English professors that I had at Rutgers which no you know, not going to, but I was in this point of frame of mind of where I really wanted to go to a place of where I was going to try to try to figure that out. And I spent a long time trying to figure that out. So, um, so yeah, so it was a great, it was definitely a great experience, but it was, uh, I think an interesting, you know, kind of unique experience in some ways. If
0: you could go back there and retake one of the courses that you took today, which
1: one do you think it would be? Uh, so I've prepared for this question. Um, <laughs> and it's, oh, you got a cheat sheet for somebody? <laughs> I guess if you listen I to listen the podcast, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, the, the, one of the classes I took there um, was, the entire course was on the wasteland, T.S. Eliot's poem, yeah. um, which sounds, I think, kind of weird to a lot of people, um, but it was an amazing, amazing course. I mean, it was basically like a survey of literature of, uh, you know, um, and again, poetry is not really my thing, but it was this fascinating way of sort of looking at poetry, and, um, but really history as well. It was just a, a lot of historical insight into it. and. Uh, and even though I, I, from an enjoyment perspective, I'd love to go back and do that, but uh, I, it's still like something I feel like you can go back to and continue. I would still learn that much more, like, you know, of, of text that I didn't even, you know, fully get into because he, he basically he references things like Dante and you know the Canterbury Tales and all these different things, and then we would read excerpts and pieces of that. It was just kind of like an amazing way to have this like uh, intense survey of uh, classical literature. Gotcha.
0: Uh, great. So. Um, Coming out of the new school, did you go to Vitamin Water immediately from there?
1: No, I um, went to Long Island. I, well, I worked for a while. I worked as like a messenger in New York, and again, I was sort of trying to figure out the writing thing, like what exactly I was going to do, um, and then I went out to... Uh, work with a friend of mine who uh, started a company um, building pools in the Hamptons. And I, Amazing. <laughs> I was uh, a pool man uh-huh. um, for uh, two years, maybe like a year and a half, uh, in the winter time as well, in Bridgehampton and uh, East Hampton. Um, again, I had a sister who I was able to mooch, out of, uh-huh. mooch off of who had a, a home out there. Same sister or a different sister? Same sister, sister. Yeah. yeah. Which really, at that point, I guess it was mooching. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Her and my brother-in-law had a place out there. and. Um, so I stayed there and uh, and yeah, worked as a pool man. Um, tried to write, which I did not write uh, much of anything out of uh, you know like substantial stuff, and realized how hard it is, you know, uh-huh. kind of to do all that stuff on your own. But um, but yeah, so I was a pool man, uh, which. <laughs> Like, I, uh, there's a whole I, other that, podcast. So that, yeah, the uh, the that's the
0: third use of the term pool man. So I'll call it out. Is that an explicit uh, uh, of of uh, pool boy? Yeah, I guess that's <laughs> a good point. Yeah, that is a very good point. Yeah. Is that so? Like, it sounds like they are. Uh, was your job in the realm of getting pools installed, or was both. it like maintenance? So in the
1: when I first started in the summer, it was it was like the classic pool boy uh, yeah. maintenance. Drove up in the truck, cleaned the pool kind yeah. of thing. Uh, but then when I ended up staying on to... The the friend of mine that uh, he he was from Long Island. And he actually bought into this company um, in some ways, and, and basically bought up a certain chunk of the properties that this that these two brothers had started and had uh, like for years. So he kind of took over their whole Bridgehampton properties, and it became this kind of it was, company was called Casual Water, and uh, he um, he had the like Bridgehampton versions of it. Um, so then at, we actually uh, started to do a lot of kind of crazy things, which was definitely his. Uh, more his ideas he had the more business minded uh, yeah. perspective I was kind of along for the ride but um, uh, as we went a little bit further and he expanded and actually got properties where he was building pools I had some minimal help on in terms of guiding some of those projects and things like that but my abilities were not very high um, but we also then started doing where we were detailing cars for people and their driveways and doing like uh, um, which. We're, you know, it was the Hamptons, so it was kind yeah. of an interesting thing. Um, we did some stuff where we were taking care of homes all through, like, we kind of tried to do the whole first ser- full service idea, mm-hmm. where we would take care take care of other aspects of the property, like their sprinklers and stuff. Um, the most exciting one was we uh, tried to do a Christmas tree delivery business um, that uh, involved delivering trees into, because we had all the space out in the Hamptons to bring trees, uh, mm-hmm. But that also involved a story where I was in Garden City, New York, like a week before Christmas Eve, and uh, literally a tractor trailer of trees came to my friend's house, and I just remember his dad's (laughs) face, and us being like, and I kind of did not know his dad that well, and just, uh, you know, his dad just being like, where are these going, and they just started to slowly pile up in his backyard, (laughs) um, which, yeah, that didn't, I think we sold like ten of them, I still don't know how uh, we ended up getting rid of all those. So uh, yeah, so there was a couple, you know, on uh, not very productive um, ideas around that time. But
0: so there's like the the whole crux of this piece of your life is that you have you have a, a friend in Long Island who who has purchased an interest in a pool company and lives with his dad. Am I being on that? No, no, he did
1: not live with his dad actually. Uh, but well, so the Christmas trees. Um, uh, he had a, he, well, I guess he kind of did live with his dad. Yeah, he, his family had a house out there, so he was staying <laughs> with the family. Um, but the, the reason they ended up at his uh, like his dad's home in Garden City was because we needed to get them closer to Manhattan, because uh-huh. that's where people, we had thought that people out in the Hamptons would, because uh, a lot of people would go out just for the holiday. Mm-hmm. And that was the whole idea is like, we'll deliver the Christmas tree, set it up in their house, and then they go out there and they don't have to deal with it. But we had more people interested in us actually delivering a tree to their like apartment in Manhattan um, which was a huge, huge pain, and also very fascinating in terms of the uh, distribution of Christmas trees because there's some rough uh, characters in that world and like the territory of this. Oh, really? It was like, really fascinating in terms of like where we were kind of clearly told like don't step on the wrong toes and like don't try to like you can't sell them in the street unless you have these like certain sets of license and all this other stuff but when people would see us like delivering them there was times like I remember at one point vividly thinking I was being followed by other Christmas <laughs> <guys>. <laughs> and that they were going to try to like slash my tires or something along those lines but um so yeah so that so yes he he was and he was ultimately a friend of a friend to be honest uh that um I think I knew I was going to spend some time out at my sister's I needed a job I was put in touch with him, he uh, he had this, like, more just a job, it was kind of a business, and let's see kind of how we can develop it, and um, he's done a great job with it, he's still, he, it's his full, you know, he's got a couple kids, and he's got, turned it into an amazing business, and uh, and one of the other uh, guys that I worked with at the same time um, is still there and did, did like, a, his own whole offshoot of it, which was more of the full service, like, home service stuff and things like that, so wow. it's kind of interesting but that
0: is, uh, that was an unexpected turn that this, that this story took. Uh, very cool. Well, is there a, uh, when you, just the sheer logistics of moving a Christmas tree around, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine I did this, uh, we had live trees when I was very young, uh, and it was a huge pain. I, yeah. did you, what was the worst
1: delivery? I, is there like a Manhattan walk up with, uh, yeah, there there was, um, there was a, a terrible incident that actually, uh. Was really so Pete was the guy I, I, that I, Matt was the owner and then Pete and I were like the ones that like worked with him and uh, and um, I just remember like Pete and I would split out and deliver the trees and and uh, he got some tree like um, stuck in more or less stuck in the uh, hallway of a walk up kind of thing in a nice building where people were really pissed off uh-huh. and uh, and I remember like called me and I was in the chair and so um, it involved like it it was it was stuck to the point of where like we were going to ruin the tree if we got it uh, uh, around this one stairwell that we had to get it. Like if we, like all the needles were going to be coming off and like all this other stuff. Um, but I, we ended up getting it up and into the house and quickly left. I don't think they were happy, (laughs) satisfied customers. I don't know if we fully charged them. Um, but I remember that being being more worst case scenario because I just remember a lot of angry, uh, faces. It was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. (laughs) There was a lot of people like, what the hell are you doing here? So, um, yeah but in general they were uh we, tr- we we thought we had a process down but none of them ever went very smooth even though yeah. none of them were like overly complicated none of them went smooth uh-huh. um yeah.
0: did that so it sounds like sooner or later you decide i'm gonna look for my next thing <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah.
1: what when when did that come and what was that next thing yeah so it's actually interesting i um uh it, it was around that time that i um was I, It's funny because one of the clear moments to me of recognizing that vitamin water was this interesting thing was actually seeing it out in the Hamptons on the construction sites um, where it was all of a sudden the thing that like the guys at the construction sites were drinking and it was this clear point of where you, you know I've seen it in high end delis and in the Hamptons it was a, a like a very um, you know, you, there are these influencer-based, like high-end markets where you would see vitamin water and you knew it was expensive and it was this weird thing. And I, I didn't particularly love it or anything like that. I just kind of noticed it. But then I remember seeing it starting to show up on the construction and, was, and that was fascinating to me. And I, I don't really remember why, but I read a ton about it because I was really, kind of became interested in it. Um, and my brother-in-law, was in the beverage industry in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina at the time. And so I had conversations with him and was kind of like talking to him about, have you heard of this? And it's like really fascinating to see what's happening, um, how they're developing this brand. Um, and through him, I was able to be introduced to some, like, basically, it's like they do internships. And so I went and interviewed for an internship um, yeah, with Fighting Water in New York City. Um, and it was basically as a sales, uh, like, a sales intern for the Manhattan Territory and um, and I got that internship and that was kind of how Bud and Water started um, for me uh, yeah. which was still early enough I don't think we were in all 50 states at that point like no. Bud and Water was it was definitely not like you know uh, the first ground floor type of um, type of employee but uh, but I think we may be like one or two states away from being like distributed in every state at that time um, so uh, so yeah, that started as an internship and I really was doing it more of like kind of okay, I'm going to get back to the city, do this as an internship, and to be honest, I was thinking like, I'm going to write something during this time. Like I'll, this whole time I was sort of trying to figure out kind of what I was, I was trying to write short stories, which I and didn't realize are the hardest things in the world to write, um, but that's what was still kind of like idea, I'll get back closer to the city, I'll get a job. It was a paid internship, so um, that was nice, you know, to be able to do that. And, uh, and figure out kind of what was gonna go from there. I wasn't necessarily thinking I was gonna work for Vitamin Water for uh, the years that I did at the time. But
0: Did you, um, can you talk a little bit about, was there an evolution of what that product was? So when you describe Vitamin Water as being uh, available at high-end retailers in the Hamptons, uh, when I think about Vitamin Water, I think about a plastic bottle of yeah. red uh, liquid <laughs> yeah. with the picture of Derek Jeter on it, yes. um, where, was that always the product, and it was strictly a marketing evolution, yeah. or did you witness uh, kind of an evolution of the the Yeah,
1: product? It, it's that's really interesting, and it's funny because when you talk about it now, it's it's interesting. Like, it, depending on how old you were, you, like if you didn't really fully see the evolution of the brand, it kind of um, you know was as it wasn't. So when it first was developing, it was like purely only in high end places, and it was kind of like. And, and the, the, the fascinating thing is that it's hard to kind of put into perspective now, but enhanced water as a category didn't exist mm-hmm. really at that point. There was no, pro, I mean Propel doesn't exist anymore, but like all these different things that were sort of, uh, that have developed, um, you basically had uh, expensive glass bottles of water like the Perrier's and those kind of things, and then you had, uh, you know, some packaged uh, bottled water, but I don't even think, like in this early phase, there was no Dasani. Um, there was no, you know, like those things didn't exist because they didn't think that this was an actual viable market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, enhanced water, like it was just this weird thing that was kind of on your shelf. But it's, it, and again, it's hard to think about, but it's basically just soda and Snapple. Like that was like what you had everywhere. It was like soda and Snapple was kind of like the thing and Gatorade. Yeah. Um, you had like some versions of that. And uh, so so it did it definitely um when i was there like i was saying when i first started uh it was starting to become um seen uh it was starting to become more mainstream yeah but it was definitely uh based on the fact that it had started as it did as this kind of uh you you know um not for everybody type product like that was that was genuinely their whole strategy and marketing was influencer strategy um and so they were in all the high-end you know uh grocery stores in manhattan all the high-end places in uh, the, the you know the Hamptons and then they focused on you know any of the gourmet places in LA They kind of like just that's specifically like how they targeted their distribution and now as Whole Foods has developed and those kind of things again these things are sort of like common you know standard but um but so the product definitely at the time was like right in the middle of that switch in terms of it was becoming fully um, mainstream and uh, or made right at the I, when I got there it had just it had pretty much become mainstream because um, like we did we didn't have all the Personalities that we had, but I think we did have um, 50 at that point. Like we did a 50 cent, like right around that time frame. Time frame when I started. Talk to me about 50 cent. <laughs> yeah, so I I figure this is where eventually this <laughs> is going. Um, but yeah. So uh, I for to get it out. First off, I met him once. Um, and and it was like a very uh like you know others 50 cent kind of thing. Like yeah. it wasn't like um, and that was mainly because. For me, I was in New York, so one of my jobs as an intern was literally like dropping product off to celebrities at times, like those kind of things, like as an intern, um, which I didn't do to Fifty Cent's like house. But there was really um, just as a, not to go too much on a tangent, but the Fifty Cent story is, is fascinating because um, it's basically Chris Lighty was his manager, who has since actually passed away tragically, uh, but he was also the guy that uh, was you know brought up Ella Cool J and I think um, Missy Elliott and. Uh, um, like the tribe called Quest guy so he was kind of one of these early business moguls in the hip-hop world he was from Def Jam he grew up in the Bronx um, and Chris Letty was the one that uh, he put a bottle of vitamin water in 50 Cent's hand for a Reebok commercial uh-huh. um, with the idea in mind that he was going to sort of try to build this relationship of uh, you know using products and those kind of things and so um, there was a guy at vitamin water named Rohan, Rohan Oza who is probably if not most responsible for some of the success, I think they now call him like the brand father and stuff. He started a venture, uh, like, uh, um, company. And, and he's fascinating. You can read about him. He was known from, uh, basically, uh, turning Sprite around. Um, and then basically admitting he was going to get canned from Coke because he kind of was this like rogue guy that did things on his own went to Glasgow when it was really small. Um, and had this whole idea of brand ambassadors and brand influencers and also, um, and so he and he he had contact with Chris Lighty. So basically, the fifty cent story, that like the, the most the most interesting aspect of it. I don't obviously know the full details of the financial agreement, um, but uh, um, you know, Chris Lighty recognized that equity was going to be the component to it. Um, there was some what we were told and like kind of talked to about, and what was you know pretty seemed pretty true was that. Um, he aligned better with the brand than anybody expected in terms of his like no alcohol, no, you know, this kind of things worked out all the time. And, yeah. Um, but the flavor was, the flavor from from what I understand, the flavor was actually developed a little bit before he was there actually as Formula 50 um, because it was 50% of your daily vitamins kind huh. of thing. Yeah. And um, it was shortly after that meeting that they got in touch with him. And it was actually Chris Lighty who from what I understand was responsible for saying that it should reflect the uh, quarter Waters, which were all over the street, you grew up in the Bronx, and it was basically like this is what yeah. everybody. In the neighborhood there's a there's in. a line on
0: the Get Rich or Try It album about Quarter Waters. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> I forget
1: what song it's in, but that yeah, yeah. it's the
0: only thing I've ever uh, only place I've ever heard that phrase is really? from the so. yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And they were they were ubiquitous in, in the neighborhoods that I when I was first selling wedding they were still all around, and that was it. It was just you know they were kind of like the Kool-Aid versions of these really cheap waters, and he, Chris Lighty, actually recognized and said that's how we should market it, and nobody drinks anything other than, um, you know, like, the great flavors, what really sells well, Uh, and so that was really from Fiddy, and so uh, everything I heard was in terms of the, I think, the juicy question that everybody kind of wants to say was that, you know, the agreement was something at the time around, like, you know, 10%, and I think Rohan was known for giving, like, points out, like, Mm -hmm. ranging to different celebrities from, like, Half a point to like ten percent, kind of this thing, and fifty was definitely on the higher scale of that. Yeah. Um, everything I heard was that he also, uh, you know, I, that he made like a, some somewhere around like a hundred million dollars at the at the end. I mean, yeah, I fun. think
0: that it, it may be speculative, but my understanding is there's some public information about there being a nine figure outcome for him. And yeah. One of the things I had also read about uh, was that there was a point in time when he was going around buying up. Vested stock options from existing right. employees prior to the acquisition.
1: Yeah, you, you had mentioned that when we on my first day, yeah, and so I and I remember I like heard stories of that. I didn't personally know of any of any. I knew of people that had left that supposedly had sold, you know, like things or and stuff like that. But um, but I, I you know I never heard of like anybody that specifically had sold stuff to them. From what I understood, it was it was mainly based on this agreement. The one. Um, well, yeah, the story like, again, maybe uh, that I don't know is like most kosher about this in terms of like how, the, but one of the, he had stipulations in his contract that we knew about and I specifically knew about New York. Cause I, so at the time, eventually I was, um, over, I oversaw the, the New York market. I um, ended up for, so it was overseeing the marketing and sales team and, and managing the distribution. And uh, his flavor was very, very popular. And uh, one of the things that was becoming more and more talked about was that there were stipulations in terms of what uh, level his flavor got to, in terms of how successful it was and what numbers it hit. Ah. Um, And I will say that uh, around that time, uh, we often got uh, Bud and Water of his flavor that was not quite best uh, up to snuff, like uh, color was off and things like that. And so the guys that were part of the uh, team that I managed that were independent distributors, you know were very conspiratorial <laughs> and very uh <laughs> they're trying to, trying to
0: tank the numbers so he doesn't hit whatever they, yeah
1: they were like convinced that this was, it was a full-on tank job and yeah. there was a lot of stuff part of it was just I think in general it was just massive growth uh, at the yeah. time that we were like exploding and so like a lot of um this was before we were coke so our bottling and those kind of things were you know done in patchwork ways and so yeah. was it was a really but um but yeah it, it was uh yeah, it was interesting. So, I mean, he had, and Rohan, from the way he built the brand in that sense, I mean, the, the guy that we worked with a lot more when I was in New York was David Wright. Um, and, I mean, I know he made around $20 million off of the equity that wow. he had uh, stakes on. And there was, you know, a lot of others, a lot of others. Uh,
0: so, I were, uh, I very unfairly am making this the 50 Cent podcast instead <laughs> yeah, yeah. of uh, your podcast. It sounds like your job was pretty amazing. So, you, you started out as an intern there, a paid intern that mm-hmm. was assisting in this Manhattan territory uh you ended up running sales and marketing
1: for that entire territory is that right yes yeah so i was i think at the time i was the youngest person in that position and new york was the biggest territory um and i'll be honest the reason i think it was um i i I, you know i i think i I did i worked hard at the job and did really well but one of the things um, was from the sales perspective of it uh and not to get too complicated by this but um, New York City was the one place when, after the Coca-Cola buyout happened, that we did not go um, to Coca-Cola trucks because New York is 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 Pepsi country, uh, believe it or not. And really? So, yeah, and Pepsi's based in a little bit outside of the city of, in New York and Westchester, and so um, Coke is not very strong in New York in the ways that it is in other places from a distribution chip, like The trucks getting everywhere, um, so it was more uh, efficient and viable for them to stay with our independent distributor. Um, this is the most fascinating story, really, about the time that I was there. This independent distributor, which I'll remain nameless at this point, uh-huh. uh, but uh, this so this is where I started as an intern. I spent you know more time at the office at Warner in Queens as I as I my, the, my role uh, you know grew when I got promoted. But um, when I was there as an intern, this is you would go every morning to this distributor in Queens, and it was in with Queens, which is literally like the armpit of. Queens, uh, that it's just full of trucks like UPS is headquartered here like FedEx it's just trucks going out like all this stuff the only other exciting thing about it was the diner in the movie Goodfellas where Robert De Niro's outside the phone booth was like yeah, right yeah. next to that place. so we used to like go there all the time but it, um, but so in that similar vein it was uh, when I first started there there was two offices in the lobby of this distributor and um, uh, the, the office on the one side was for a guy named Matthew Madonna and the office on the other side was for a guy named Jack D'Amico and Jack D'Amico was Jackie the Nose who was the acting boss of the Gambino family after the Gottis wow. had taken away and Matthew Madonna was one of the highest people in the Lucchese crime <laughs> family um, both of them since have, have have spent time in prison since I left um, Jack D'Amico I saw once like uh-huh. he was never there Matthew Madonna was the head of refrigeration so I used to actually have to go into his office wow. and track him down all the time and He's fascinating. You can Wikipedia him. Yeah. You can Google Matthew Madonna. He's the guy that was notorious for, in the 70s, if you ever saw the movie American Gangster, but he was the I guy did. that literally drove uh, trunk uh, like cars with their trunks full of heroin into um, the Harlem, and Nicky Barnes would then switch keys and fold, fill the trunk with cash, and he would pick it up, and he ended up spending 20 years in jail for that. Uh, in the later phase of his career, he ended up at the distributor where I was... Uh, um, you know, in charge of kind of like eventually in charge of uh, managing the relationship. And so uh, that was part of the reason I think I was kept in that position was I had uh, some of the longevity of working with those guys. And for some reason, they really liked me. I don't know what exactly it was, um, but they uh, I got along well with them. And, um, and I think that was part of the reason versus them bringing someone new in from Coca-Cola or someone new in that sense, I think it would have been a really... Uh, you know challenge for them that wouldn't have necessarily gone well and so um, that promotion that I got where I was actually overseeing that territory I think was um, a lot of it was based on that and then um, a a lot of that role at the time which was really the most fascinating stuff to me was actually being able to work with uh, really high up Coca-Cola brand people how
0: far into your tenure there was the Coke
1: acquisition so it was maybe two Three years in, I think it was three. And years how in. long were you there total? And uh, well, six years is an, if you include the intern, it was like yeah. five years total. So, um, but uh, uh, and well, no, it's like five and a half. Um, and yeah, so it was it was uh, I was there for, I think a full year after the bio, and I was promoted. After the Coca-Cola bout, to the to the senior position that we, we were talking had about.
0: a lot of your senior managers that were over you gotten swapped out or
1: was there a lot of turbulence in the yeah actually chart? at that point um, not a ton uh, maybe a month or two before I left um, there there was like uh, like it the, was like the first really key people that were really like kind of built in the brand uh, left mm-hmm. um, but but a lot of people stayed around for a while because they really didn't. Um, you know, it's funny when you when you go through that period where they, when you're bought out, but uh, the big conversation that you hear and you know, you know know was that, in this sense, there a lot of it was there buying um, the people behind the product because we were known as this really scrappy sort of like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, we just sort of did things in a little bit of a different way. Obviously, from a marketing perspective and branding perspective, it was a lot of former co-people that were at Class o, so that was kind of a tendency, but really there was this idea that they were gonna infuse their distribution and their field teams with a lot of what we had built, um, so a lot of that uh, was was really still in place. But uh, when I left, eventually that changed, in a lot of ways that it, you know eventually um, they kind of figured out how to you know how to kind of uh, con- you know absorb it a little bit uh, deeper. But a lot of that related to also distribution stuff, which is kind of boring. But I gotta imagine that though
0: uh, in the distribution universe, much like your uh, Christmas tree experience. Yeah. There is a lot of territorialism, and there is a lot of uh, kind of you know uh, beneath the eyes of the law stuff that just goes on, and yeah. how stuff gets divvied up in doing business in Manhattan, particularly with yeah. uh, something as lucrative as uh, soft drinks. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, is there anything <laughs> that stands out as
1: an experience you had in, in that regard? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's there is a lot of stories that uh, that um, and you know to, to be honest the the. the, the Kind of um, clearest perspective I had a lot of that when was when I was an intern because that's when I was kind of running around in the streets <laughs> yeah and um, and so there was guys that would uh, and this in this case these are the independent distributors that own say you know um, territory in New York City where it was like 14th Street between or you know 7th Avenue between 14th and 23rd Street something like that in fact, probably a little bit larger um, and you know one of their big uh, independent grocery stores. Um, you know, there'd be ways to sort of uh, help their unit economics, so to speak, mm-hmm. of like what the pricing typically was on, uh, you know, a case of vitamin water. So like, and I'm trying to remember now, I mean, I had to memorize so well at the point, but it was like, our deals were, it was funny. I think it was like six cases on 30 was kind of the deal that we would sell in the most. Um, but there was challenges. What does that, that mean? So like, uh, you buy 30 cases, get six free, basically. You. Like, okay. um, and uh and the the interesting thing though was it but then it would, it would expand out and kind of like the and it would just basically bring down the, the, the cost of a case which I'm, I'm actually blanking i used to know these so well at the time but um uh you know it would shave off four or five you know whatever the, the amount of dollars were on, on like an actual case how many bottles are in a case 24 yeah okay. there was yeah 24 um and it also it varied in terms of that was a case of of the classic button water and then it varied in terms of sizes and all those kind of things and at the time that was a big part and that was something that i actually had more pride in was building smart water uh because that was something that we had didn't really i hadn't developed at that point that was really something that from a market that get
0: developed under glasso before
1: the coke acquisition did yeah did. yeah and it and wow. it was uh very clearly it was probably the biggest like i felt in terms of my promotion and things like that it was the biggest impact that uh it was something that I really believed in, and um, partially because when I was an intern, I was selling it in the Bronx, and, and nobody thought that people would buy, um, you know, uh, water for that price in in certain places where you know you wouldn't expect, where literally the the you know the the stores just didn't carry you know these more expensive uh, bottles, and so. Um, it, we I saw a lot of traction around it in a way that I think was really interesting. Again, I think this was the market moving in a way that people hadn't quite really uh, recognized. But there was a, a, a very clear conversation that Coke didn't really think Smart Water was gonna stick around and, uh-huh. and thought that Sandy could easily fill that gap. And um, and even up until the buyout, there was a, there was a conversation like, uh, and, and so it was weird because we came to a point where we had a lot of people mixed in that were previous Coke people and those kind of things. and They would tell the stories about when they would say like, you know, when DeSanti was first pitched and, and how like half the company just rolled their eyes and was like, this stuff's never gonna sell. Nobody's yeah. gonna buy water out of a bottle like this. Like, and so <clears throat> there was still a lot of that thinking at the time. Um, so the point being smart water was uh, one of those things that I think we used a lot to, um, uh, you know, vitamin water was, was selling obviously, but we used the leverage of kind of throwing in extra cases of smart water free a lot. Uh, okay. That uh, really I think ended up building traction um, for the brand in a way that people, you know, didn't necessarily see. And towards towards the tail end was then when they, I think, right before the Coke buyout was when we had actually signed like Jennifer Aniston and Tom Brady, wow. uh, that kind of stuff, which um, I think definitely helped it nationally in, in a big way. But uh,
0: were those celebrity endorsements ever? regional in nature? I know you have local sports celebrities, obviously. Um, yeah. And did you get involved with any of that in the New York area?
1: Yes, yeah. So they were they were uh, very regional. And from a marketing perspective, absolutely. Like, our most of... So, and, I mean, it's interesting now when you think about it. And I remember talking to Tristan about this. So like, it was all field marketing that I was doing. It was, you know, our digital footprint at the time was, like, you know, barely like existed. Like, I remember... Um, and so, from a field marketing perspective, it was almost all based on those local... Uh, properties wow. and and so in New York, uh, I I worked fairly closely with David Wright and um, and the marketing team was usually events that we were having going on. I mean, think of products like Bite and Water. It's a lot of like free giveaways and T-shirts and like what can be sponsored. So um, we also had uh, what they called like you know um, these the trucks that still went out with free samples and those kind of yeah. things. Um, but uh, but property wise, uh, one of the big projects that I worked on as well was the All Star Game at Yankee Stadium, um, and one of the. Uh, and I, I was, that was another thing that I think helped sort of my career, career trajectory because I think if by default I was there at being a local market person. But um, uh, one of the things that I pushed was using David Ortiz, who is a local property in Boston that like nobody would have brought to New York in, right, from yeah. a market perspective. Good um, point. To bring him to uh, certain boroughs in New York in terms of actually putting up his product, his um, his we call point of sale that was used around him and it ended up being super successful um, and that was just based on you know there was a, a dominican population that really responded to kind of everything about Dave ortiz and stuff and so it was really interesting to sort of see the properties come across but usually they were very isolated like mcnab was a property in philly um, the guy that actually was super responsible for a lot of the philadelphia marketing um ended up with the money that he made after Brighton water opening the Barbary down in northern oh, no, wait. yeah um he was this <clears throat> um john was his name and uh, like he left pretty quickly afterward and he, with the money he's like i'm gonna open a club and bar and uh wow done pretty well but um that's awesome yeah um but so so there were yeah there were local properties um uh henrik lundquist was the other one and david lee actually oh, yeah. um we did a lot with that i, I you know ended up uh, doing a lot of events um with him and him and David Wright were the predominant people that we uh, um, would you know kind of organize uh, marketing uh, launches around and stuff.
0: And once the, you're in a process where mm-hmm. you say, okay, we uh, you you likely have some level of budget on an annual basis that's going to be allocated toward getting these local celebrities, and you have to kind of make a decision of how long tail you want to go, or if you want to go after big ones. Yeah. Uh, say you decide, okay, we're going to go after David Lee. What's that process like? Are you going to an agency? You find his agent and yeah, yeah, that's a good point.
1: And uh, yes, and it is, and uh, and that was usually handled by you know the um, the like kind of brand ignition team that were handling properties, like the people that handled the actual negotiations with the you know the actual celebrities and endorsers or brand ambassadors. was kind of a black box in terms of what came out of it. We would see them sort of coming in and then and then we would have a budget to sort of how we we're gonna execute on yeah. what they were doing. Um, but yeah, it typically, um, I think to be honest, a lot of it came from some of the equity arrangements that we made early on that a lot of people came to us and a lot of them were represented across agents. Um, so I know there was a lot of athletes that, yeah, that because um, uh, I know towards the tail end, uh, this is gonna sound like a name dropping thing, but there's a, a family, a, a good friend of mine, Whose Godfather is an agent and he had worked with Fightin' Water, but I didn't know it at the time, uh-huh. um, around, um, maybe, I think maybe it was even they were actually trying to maybe talk to Iverson at the time. It was something along that, because he was a Philly based um uh-huh. But so, a lot of it was agents that had multiple clients from the athletic from the athlete perspective, and there was, you know, one person that was kind of the poor person on that. Gotcha, yeah. makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense.
0: Um, so, uh, since we're on the topic of celebrity encounters, uh, I'm going to go down to John Oliver town. Uh, there's been some rumors around here that uh, you know John Oliver. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, yeah, yeah, if so, that's true and what that relationship is?
1: It is true, um, and, it, and it is. It's one of those things that like I don't. I've, I there's no way of denying now. I guess that I'm like a name dropper, and I feel uh, I, just, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I
0: think the mere <laughs> fact that uh, there's you've been here for a year, and there's still that much. People listening to this are are going,
1: what? (laughs) Uh, I I guess that's evidence of you not being a name driver. So I I went to high school with John's uh, wife. And Ah, when, um, and I don't, some people may know the story because I think he's talked about it in interviews. um, But they met actually at the RNC that was in Colorado. And so his wife is an Iraqi veteran. um, And so she was in Iraq. And, um, and uh, was there for a vet's group that she was kind of doing some stuff for, and um, he still was. And I'm not quite up on the whole uh, immigration, like the whole process. But I guess he, yeah. I don't think he even had a green card yet, so he was just on a work visa, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they were being chased. Uh, the the crew that he was with at the RNC. At so the he was a Daily Show correspondent. Yes. a yeah, Daily Show okay. correspondent. Yeah. And um, and this is all like genuine, like yeah. genuine being chased. Uh, by s- some people there and they were like not sure what they're going to do and he was, uh, you know, in hindsight talks about how he was like legitimately nervous at a lot of those instances because he's like, you know, I feel a lot of these people would love to get me thrown out of the country. Yeah. And, um, and uh, Kate, his, his wife, ended up actually sort of, you know, quote unquote saving him. It was basically like, oh, you guys can come in this uh, booth or whatever, wherever she was hanging. I think it was at some stadium of some kind. And. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talked for a while that was how they kind of first met and so she was living in DC and I was living in New York and I remember she had mentioned like oh you know I'm talking to this daily show writer kind of guy that was and um and I did not have a TV at the time, uh, and did not know exactly who she was talking about. Yeah. Um, and really never took the time to look into who she was talking about. I think she said the name a couple of times and I don't either know if I just didn't really believe or whatever it was, but, um, one of the early times that she came up to actually visit, cause I think they just kind of corresponded for a while and then might've even been like another event that they think that they were both at, a, both at because of, um, her being in the vets group and, and doing that stuff. And, um, and then I think it was kind of like oh, I'm going to come up and you know see him in New York and uh, I guess this this point they had sort of started dating but she was still not living in New York and uh, and so she said you know will you come meet out at this kind of at this you know at a, at a bar or this, this guy it was very new the point is is the relationship and I still did not take the time <laughs> to look into who he was exactly and yeah. uh and got there, and at the time, I was obsessed with the British version of The Office, and mm-hmm. so that was all that I ended up um, talking to him about, and it, came, it turned out, like, Ricky Gervais was actually the one that told John Stewart that he should look at John and, like, all this stuff. Wow. Um, but so, midway through, like, that kind of uh, burger, or whatever we were doing, hanging out, someone came up to him and was like, I'm a huge fan of yours, yeah. and I, I was like, are you on the screen? Like, <laughs> I thought you were just a writer, like, yeah. I didn't think he was on the screen, and then, uh, and I think maybe he maybe appreciated that I didn't. I don't, I don't know yeah. whatever, whatever it was. believe um, that, yeah. And then so then over time, uh, um, you know, she ended up eventually moving up to New York, and I was still in New York, uh, you know, for a while after that. So, um, you know, got to kind of know him as they were first starting dating and stuff. And so, uh, and yeah, I've saved my my wife has since also become close with Kate, and so yeah, we're um, I would say pretty friendly. Um, and he's a he's a he's a great guy. Awesome. I uh,
0: I believe it is there. Um, yeah, do you have any sense of uh, I guess when you hang out, do you talk about uh, his job and the kind of professional stuff? Or
1: yeah, man, like definitely don't talk about politics. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't don't feel like I'd uh, you know do anything other than just sound ignorant of some some sort. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he does uh, talk um, you know a decent amount, I think about uh, about the job. I mean, it, it's been it's been super and. You know, I end up face-to-face see him probably, like, a couple times a year kind of thing. But I think we we keep in touch um, enough, you know, through sort of... I mean, it's funny when... he's Like, I'll send him a text message sort of, like, about the show and things like that. And and uh, sometimes we'll respond, sometimes he won't. Kind yeah. of usually, or, like, a, a time will go by. Um, but uh, but usually, like, I mean, I, the one that I remember is the Snowden one. Like, because that was so quiet and yeah. under the raps. And I remember just... Sending him like uh, like a WTF or something like that, and them just being like you have no idea, what <laughs> um, and so uh, so like hearing some of those stories are kind of fascinating. Like, yeah. um, but uh, but yeah, I mean it, it's not it's not like a real juicy uh, yeah uh, gossip thing for the most part. But sure. uh, but yeah, but it it I mean it's it's. I think it's it's really interesting to me because i think when i started here was when you know he had the show it just launched and stuff because i think about my previous job and as it's here i don't think anybody really knew i was friends with him but i also don't think that many people knew who he was yeah well he had that run
0: where he was guest hosting the daily show and john stewart was out uh
1: directing that movie and i think that yeah that was probably right around the time when you came here yeah Yeah. exactly and so it was kind of so i think I, i literally i wore the sweatshirt the one day and um and I, and I remember being like, how do you... I mean, you, you sort of should... Like, someone's like, oh, did you go to the show? And... Yeah. and but I remember right away... I think it was Alex Click actually. Yeah. And I remember, like, walking by and being like, I sound like... it, Because like I'm like, oh, no, he's a friend of mine. Like, you know, like, I just felt weird about it. But uh, but I also didn't know what else I was supposed to say. Um, but, yeah, and it's, so it's nothing that uh, I... Yeah, by total, you know, just accidentally know his wife. So there's nothing uh, accomplished that uh, that is involved in... Uh, you know, a celebrity relationship that I've, uh, whatever.
0: I don't know. Uh, well, you're super modest about it, but uh, very. Uh, it's super fascinating. It it really is, and I think it means a lot. Uh, your quality of friendship and being able to keep that up while his life is so crazy uh, says a lot about it. you and a lot about him.
1: Yeah. Well, I think yeah. I think uh, yes. Yeah. I don't know. I think um, I, I think it's funny because I think partially there's. Uh, I'm probably the only sort of I think friend through Kate there through his wife you know that they really kind of have and and that's obviously the, the big piece of his life outside work where, where yeah. he's got some very good very close very funny uh, friends that uh, you know are uh, in, back in England and, and obviously he's he's very close with a lot of people on the show kind of thing so yeah. Um, which yeah which is uh, yeah it's been yeah it's been cool it's been very cool to see you know what what kind of he's been able to do in the last year or two, because that's, I mean, he's an uh, insanely hardworking person, um, and obviously very smart, but it's uh, it's really, it was really cool to see that kind of all come to fruition, because it was just sort of each step, you're kind of like, oh, this, you know, yeah, it was just really cool to see how well he, uh, he turned everything into something uh, amazing, as unique as it was. Yeah. Um, so,
0: uh, back to you, <laughs> vitamin water, uh, and at what point in time did you uh, have the, the, inkling to do something else and what was the motivating factor for that
1: yeah so um a lot of it was from meeting my wife um so it was um uh, when i met emily she was still in law school i was still at Fighting water and i was definitely uh uh so i guess i didn't talk about this one of the, the biggest thing that happened to me at Fighting water that made me want to do something else was i had to lay people off um and so um and it was uh it specifically on my team kind of thing and, and it was it was done in uh, the way where Coca-Cola was very, you know, s- specific to their HR policies and um, I, we weren't allowed to see them face-to-face. We had to call them at four o'clock um, and, and the people knew there was some, like a group, some people on the team knew that there were at least like three people were going to be laid off uh-huh. um, but uh, some of them had been there longer than me so some, uh, some of them were older than me and uh, those kind of things and so that um, I just, I, that hit me in a way that I felt like kind of like, you know, I'm not sure it uh, was know, this. Why? This was after the Coke acquisition. It was. was it a financial
0: performance reason, or was it about the merger and redundancy?
1: Or? Yeah, it was more about the merger and redundancy. And it, um, like I guess we had talked about that. I've, I kind of forgot. Like when we, there wasn't like a huge sort of exodus of people. Um, and these layoffs, I think, were fairly small in the extent of like typical. When these typically look like a bio in the beverage industry like this uh, something of this size would happen usually like you know whole chunks of um, regional teams were kind of uh, taken part. Um, so it was still fairly minor in terms of uh, the scale that I think people were expecting. Um, but yeah, it was essentially just uh, a little bit of like reworking how the uh, how the teams were gonna kind of come together. Um, and I think and to be honest I probably uh, you know teams in other places were probably hit harder than the team in New York. But um, but yeah, it was related to you know to that. It, w- it was not like purely performance-based kind of thing, which would be obviously a different story. And there was sure. things like that that had occurred. That you know, as when you're young and managing people, yeah, and figure out through no fault of the people that are getting laid off. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I, that really sort of put me in a place where I was struggling, and the the work that I was doing was also um, becoming much more challenging in terms of. Uh, one of the bigger roles from the distributions perspective because we were negotiating um, contracts that were very complicated and kind of layered um, but uh, as someone that was sort of the point person for a lot of these independent guys it was not really coming out in their favor in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and I think they knew that and saw it coming but um, it just I, I you know I didn't really know what my position was at that point kind of like what you know I was really more just felt like I was kind of inflicting pain than sort of building a brand anymore And uh-huh. uh, um, and so, uh, as we sort of talked about, I would always been trying to do some type of the writing. At this point, I was working crazy hours and all the time and, um, and enjoying it for the most part, but when you start to not enjoy it so much and those kind of things reflect, um, it was really Emily that encouraged uh, me to, um, you know, sort of, you know, it's a great opportunity to sort of give the writing a shot kind of thing. And so. Um, what I did was I left Bud and Water uh, and moved to Philadelphia because I could afford to uh, versus living in New York. And um, and I... It was Emily already here? She was here, yes. Yeah, she was here. She had not yet finished um, law school. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so I moved to Philadelphia um, and uh, I started working in restaurants and I wrote a feature-length screenplay um, and then I wrote a comedy spec script of Always Sunny and then I wrote um, a... Uh, one hour drama pilot um, and I did that while I was working in restaurants uh, for two years so I um, uh, that was kind of um, an amazing experience um, sort of you know so I mean part of what I love about writing is it's one of those things where every morning when you sit down you sort of learn something about yourself in one way or another You're, um, uh, which you know like how you know that kind of thing so I, I love the fact of sort of where I was able to actually focus on, my process figure out more of like you know how I actually can function as a writer and those kind of things Um, and uh, and it was um, in terms of a goal in mind I didn't have like a very clear one Um, there was some encouragement from people like John and some other people and things and that was really helpful Um, and it was a lot of refining what I worked on and the biggest thing was I did a You know a feature length that was terrible that I'd barely share with anybody but I finished it and I felt really good about it Mm -hmm. Um, the comedy I think was actually pretty good but it was a comedy spec and then the drama was something totally different so I was in this place that like uh, most of the feedback I got was these are good and I would do one more of one of these Um, and right around that time uh, you know I was getting a little more serious about realizing you know when I want to get engaged income all those kind of things were kind of uh, really figuring out what I was gonna do um, and I uh, had started volunteering at a nonprofit called Mighty Writers, which works with kids. Um, and uh, through them, there was conversations about some grants that they had in the work that they asked me to sort of look at. And I helped work on a couple grants that ended up um, basically getting me to this role, of where I was going to be director of new media programs at Mighty Writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that involved working with kids, seeing um, how to improve their skills writing skills uh, online. And that was what opened me up to the digital stuff. So then I, um, basically it was kind of a luddite at that point, to be honest. Um, and it was starting to, the real thing that interested me was I was realizing that it was changing the way we tell stories, that technology was clearly impacting all the stuff that I was spending my time on in terms of like how we develop a script, how you develop a story. And, and I was kind of a total outsider on this other massive uh, aspect to what was going on, and so for me, the way I learned was kind of, I wanted to start from ground zero, um, so I was like, i got to learn how to program, that was my thought from yeah. you know having no aspect of scope of what that meant, um, and I took a, a, a web intensive at General Assembly in New York um, uh, when I was st- first started working at Mighty Writers, and that what I was supposed to learn Ruby on Rails, which... I remember, you know, like I could could you know yeah. execute very little of, but I got um, a, a whole new perspective on that, and that kind of is what led in that direction. Um,
0: is uh, so during
1: that period of time, were you taking the train up to New York on a regular basis to yeah. go? Uh, yeah, two days a week. It was uh, so I was driving. Um, uh, I would drive to Hamilton, yeah, and then I'd take the train up to, uh, to Hamilton. Northeast Corridor Line. <laughs> yeah, never traffic. lets you down. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and well, the, uh, it was one day, one week night, and then it was Saturdays. Oh, okay. So I was going, it was Saturday from like, I think it was like uh, 11 to 3 or 10 to 3 or something like that um, for, I think it was 11 weeks. It was, it was, Wow. it was, yeah, pretty intensive. No, Maybe it was eight weeks, but it was, um, uh, I've talked to uh, some other people about it. It was one of the first series they did like that, and I think they've kind of refined and, and learned a lot about how they've executed them, but um, uh, it was taught by one person that did you know, started with HTML, CSS, CSS, and then JavaScript, and then it was a new person that came in that sort of took you to the Ruby and then the Rails aspect, and um, uh, I kept up fairly well from to the JavaScript side and the totally different style of teaching hmm. from the other perspective, and I was really adrift and lost, and a lot of people dropped out of the course and all that stuff, and it was kind of an interesting um, perspective, and then the biggest issue was then the work that I was doing at Mighty Writers, I thought I was gonna actually be using some of those skills, hmm. and it ended up m- m- using none of them, and so and I didn't practice any of what I, was, I had just learned, um, but, you know, still sort of try to keep in uh, touch with what was going on, and the best, I think, most valuable thing I got out of General Assembly was that community that was up there, so I ended up attending a lot of things about, you know, kind of, uh, there was a lot of Bitly people kind of running around there and sort of talking about, learning about APIs and learning about all those kinds of things that you were able to sit in and sort of understand a little bit more of and just hear how people were doing... Um, you know, some digital marketing. SeatGeek was, was one that was kind of up there all the time talking about stuff. So that was really, I think, the most valuable thing I got out of it.
0: So, did the experience there, um, I guess, looking back on it, are you glad that you did it? Uh, absolutely. Even though it's not something
1: you put to use day to Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is something that I feel like I have somewhat of a base to that I probably kid myself that I can go back and uh, I never expect that I'll be, you know, uh, to the point of where I can. Sit down and, and um, you know write code in a certain way, but um, but now obviously with a lot of what we've learned here, you know, I've been uh, poking around at you know some of the Python for you know using it data science for scratch and those yeah. kind of things. Um, uh, but then even you know I think um, so I think just I mean the logic to me is the most valuable thing you can get out of something like that when you're learning it is Absolutely. understanding that logic behind it, and I uh, I still have a ways to go in terms of really grasping it, but I feel like I have a really good base from that, which um I I, I definitely think was worth it and. Uh, I don't think I'd have as much of an insight and understanding into even just the day-to-day marketing stuff that I do if I didn't really have, have a better understanding of what people are kind of you know, working with and how they're thinking about solving these problems in uh, the world that we're kind of existing.
0: Did um, you make it sound as though uh, the, a passion for digital that started to emerge... It kind of replaced the focus in your life that was going into screenplays and short stories and things like that.
1: Is that accurate? Is, is that kind of a swap one out for the other? Or has that thread stayed alive as well? It stayed alive, yeah. I think it kind of refined it um, in a different way. So from uh, after I finished the script, um, I actually worked on a book project. It was a memoir, um, not paid, uh, but it was, it was more or less through a family friend. Um, it was actually pretty interesting. He was the... Uh, Lead one of the lead prosecutors on the John DuPont murder trial. Wow, and this, okay. was, this was before that the Foxcatcher movie had yep. come out. Um, and he basically came to me, he had read my script because he it was a family friend of Emily's, and she actually worked, he's a lawyer, uh, she worked at the law firm where he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had shared my script. My one of the dramas, this the drama I wrote was about teachers in Los Angeles, about Teach for America, and so, um. Uh, she was doing special education law, so she shared the script with someone in the office, and Mm -hmm. somehow it got to him, he was like, oh, you seem like you're a pretty good writer, and was like, I have this uh, stack of um, voice uh, transcribed journals Mm -hmm. of this time period in my life where I was the lead prosecutor on this trial, Wow. Um, and I'm curious if you'd want to work on me with it, and I said no, I was like, I don't know how to do that, I don't know how to write a book, I don't have time, I'm working, you you were at Mighty Writers at this time? Yeah, Yeah. and so that was... uh, and then eventually, when I was kind of like, well, this is sort of amazing and amazing opportunity, I sort of tried to figure out how to do it. And um, we never we never, I n- never published anything, never really finished anything. We kind of got to the point of where I, I, we finished, I finished a chunk of chapters, and then really, um, this. Uh, sorry, I'm tangenting a lot here, but uh, um, it, it, it basically, it, it turned into something that we kind of like looked at and we were, you know, uh, he, he wanted to sort of self-publish something still at that point. And, um, I think for me, it was kind of like, here's what you can kind of self-publish, but there was an idea that maybe we would then go to an agent and then time kept picking up and then the movie came mm-hmm. out and all that kind of stuff. So um, it was, again, an amazing sort of learning experience for me, but um, that took me away from the scripts because it took me to that place where I was working on the book. Um, and then uh, I was working on that book even up until when I started work at Seer, when I, because Money Writers are basically it was on a one-year grant. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so then um, uh, at the end of that, I was looking at kind of, okay, sort of what kind of tie back into the marketing experience i had at vitamin water and now i have the digital experience and um Sear seemed to be a really interesting place to sort of learn about how people are talking about that world and what's going on online and so that um was where i brought that back but during that time i then was actually doing a lot of writing for work at seer um uh, for like client work and um and so it was kind of another learning phase of figuring out how i can manage my own writing time and all that kind of stuff um and that continued to evolve and this is sort of again what I love about writing um, because you sort of just continue to figure out the tricks that you plan yourself to find time to do those things and uh, since I've been here it's probably been better than it's ever been and I've brought come back to wanting to do short stories and I just finished a short story actually that I submitted for a Tin House workshop Two days ago. So, cool. Um, that's kind of the first fictional thing, uh, fiction type thing. Um,
0: when people here, uh, including myself, inevitably want to read your stuff, how are you about that? Are you into sharing it with people? Yeah, yeah
1: the, um, the scripts for sure. Except for my feature length is it's really bad. But I actually <laughs> just shared because uh, Ryan Williams and I were talking about screenplays, and yeah. so the Always Sunny script and. Um, and the drama I wrote, uh, I have on my computer, and I, can I uh, send me those today. <laughs> okay. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I um, I will. I think they're. It, it's funny. The Always Sunny one I wrote about them destroying healthcare reform, and I wrote it. I think after the fourth season, um, and I have not seen a single episode after I wrote it. Uh-huh. Um, it was heavily influenced by Rickety Cricket, and uh, I don't know what even happens in them. <laughs> I mean, I've all stuff, but um, and I and I also don't know much about uh. Yeah, that that one it still could use some work, but it, but I I feel comfortable enough in terms of sharing it kind of thing. It's a,
0: that's great. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on Seer uh, because they are a well-known company in Philadelphia, uh, led by an awesome guy, Will Reynolds, uh, who I like quite a bit.
1: Uh, what exactly was your role there, and how did that evolve over time? So it was uh, I was basically an account manager, SEO account manager, um, and but I what what was interesting was I came in. Um, at a point where they were trying to figure out a little bit, uh, like refine how they were um, doing content strategy based projects and so um, I worked really closely with their COO over there, his name's Larry O'Dell, and he's also equally amazing guy along with Will. Um, And we sort of worked on like smaller projects or one-off client projects of where we were trying to sort of figure out how we were gonna be using like our content sort of offering um, and and what that meant in terms of uh, um, in terms of how really SEO was being used from a client's you know perspective, um, so I was sort of doing both. I was managing traditional SEO accounts uh, because that's obviously what Sears still does. Um, but uh, I was then um, also working on this sort of line of business that we were developing around content and content strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of the, I, I was, I think a little more, I was differently situated than the traditional account manager because I was working on one or two really big accounts and then uh, a lot of really small content focused projects. Gotcha. And when you think about the
0: work that you did there and other work that you're doing here, I imagine that they're uh, not completely dissimilar, although uh, there's some uniqueness to the work that you're doing here, and maybe you get to focus a little more deeply on big projects here, but can you maybe compare and contrast it? How do you feel about the work you're doing here through the lens of the things you learned at Seer about what actually constitutes good content for these kind of strategies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest thing that I'm realizing is how hard it is to execute this stuff. Uh-huh. Um, you know, when you're in an agency position, and I recently was talking to, to Janessa and Tristan about this, but um, you know, you're often making recommendations and you're and you're kind of guiding strategy, and you're um, in some cases you're executing certain aspects. Like I, I was working on writing projects where we were sort of giving, you know, page recreations or you know blog content and those kind of things. That stuff happened. Um, but when you're in the thick of it and doing it, um, you know, you know, I don't think I even realized how, just how many facets there are to everything you need to do to execute around, you know, doing marketing well. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's been the biggest takeaway. And that was honestly one of the things that I was sort of excited to, uh, take part of. Um, the other thing that I think is, is, uh, um, you know, is, is different and interesting is also, um you know, the base of content uh, that RJ's built up over time, going back to honestly, I mean, one of the first things that drew me to RJ was looking at some of your early work and some of the things that you've done, because to me, when I look at like, oh, how did RJ really get off the ground? I mean, to me, it was content marketing that you were putting out there and and doing and It was like, it was sort of baked into the, what, you know, built this company from a marketing perspective. Um, And it was done really well, in my opinion. And so that was one of those things that it was always kind of looked at as like, this was, a place that's doing it well—it's um, fascinating to see the layers of that and how that continues to develop. I mean, if anybody you know wants to look at Google Analytics and see the blog posts that are trafficked on our blog, I mean, I think a lot of people would be surprised in terms of what still gets looked at and what still gets uh, you know visitors brought into the site. Um, and so the other aspect of then refining that and turning into that into you know targeted valuable leads that we can you know actually uh, convert to paying customers is. Um, something that was often missing in my work at Seer, um, and not missing in the sense of you know blindly kind of wooding it but uh, you're in a room usually with a small unit of a larger company um, and to me that the reason there was a sort of uh, breakdown there if you're just talking to the marketing team and you're just talking maybe to their web design team and dev team um, uh, but you're not talking to their sales team and you're not talking to that um, you're only seeing half the full picture and you're only giving half the recommendations in some cases. Um, and not to say this is what happened that's here, but that's one of the challenges is are sure. often trying to get at that uh, table. And so um, one of the big ways to, I think, in my opinion, resolve that is obviously with uh, data and having a very holistic perspective of the data. And so um, that was, again, something that also made me interested in, in RJ was seeing where a lot of people were solely relying on Google Analytics to sort of guide their strategy and guide what they were, um, you know, how they were executing their marketing uh, materials, in their prospect. and so uh, what kept popping up was sort of this, um, what RJ provided, which was this, you know, fuller picture and really kind of connecting these disparate sources to really have a bigger perspective on how you want to be executing. And so I think it's kind of a very high level thing that's evolved since my time here at here that's been really interesting and helpful. And then obviously I think from very, you know, on the ground perspective of executing the type of content I'm executing, um, I've just, you know, learned a ton about.
0: Amazing. Um, so, we've told a lot of really uh, interesting stories here. We've gone down a lot of really interesting avenues. Um, I mean, maybe just a holistic, big-picture question, you know, what what are you happiest about in your life right now? What are you hoping happens next? Like, what, what do you think this – you're entering
1: in your second year here. What do you hope happens in the second year? Um, I, I think I, – I, I mean, to me, what's always driven me in my career, I think, is uh – is learning um like i just i thrive on a place where i feel like i'm learning something new um my you know my college experience was always something that i you know i've always learned best on my own i dive in deep into things and it's typically it's just how i do it i kind of like and so being in an environment of where i've learned so much in the last year in terms of you know uh you know just what you know um crazy growth looks like and Mm -hmm. and from you know a company that's uh, you know, building a team and, and refining it and all those kind of things um, to sort of that uh, you know the next layer of what the new challenges may be and all those kind of things um, I'm really excited to to just continue to learn um, because I think it's one of those things when I in the environment we're working um, you know I, like I said there's there's aspects of it that I love sharing with my wife because she's obviously in that environment it's it's you know how we figure out how to navigate um, you know what success means in an environment that I think is changing really fast, a market that's shifting in a lot of different ways, um, you know, will be exciting. So, I think the challenge or what I hope to do is keep up with that mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. continue to sort of push and figure out different ways, I know this maybe, not the specific answer, but I think, um, you know, I think inbound content uh, and and the way that's done is evolving really fast as yeah. well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by reading things like Neiman Lab and what the media companies are doing in terms of measuring engagement. and. You know how kind of working. I love writing and I love to write, but I don't love <laughs> reading words online all that much, and yeah. I recognize a lot of other people don't. So that's evolving, and um, so all those kind of things and thinking about all those kind of things, and obviously, most importantly, you know how they direct directly connect to our audiences is I think going to be a really interesting and fascinating time. And um, uh, but I, I think the thing that I'm most happiest about is obviously I think um, is the people you know yeah. that, that I'm kind of going to go through that with, and I think that that's. Uh, a lot of that stuff would maybe be scary as hell uh, versus exciting if you were in a different envi- or if we were in a different apartment.
0: Yeah uh, I agree it's really so much is dictated by the team uh, yeah. and the, the people that you're, you're in the trenches with. Um, all right uh, as we round to a close here a couple of rapid-fire questions okay. I'd like to ask everybody so I asked you about your one college course uh, who's your best friend?
1: Uh, my wife hands down yeah, uh, there's, yeah there's no question about it. there's a lot of um, you know, friends I still keep in touch with, but I'm actually, I probably, I'm not the best keeper in toucher, And, uh, uh-huh. uh, she's, yeah, I'm, I'm a very lucky guy, but yeah, hands down my way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: what's your favorite time waster app or website? Um, well, that's hard because I jump all over. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it was one specific. Well, um, I think the time waster, like literally if I'm like, I don't have to think about work, I don't have to think about anything of the app, I've recently become very into uh, uh, Premier League soccer. And so it's actually 442 is this app that I, um, I really enjoy. Cool. Uh,
0: what? Um, so there are two ways that you can get asked to do this podcast, at, at least when I'm hosting. Uh, one is that you're my buddy that week. And another is that I asked somebody who I was interviewing who they would love to hear a podcast about. And that's how we got connected uh, because you were a recommendation. And now I am uh, letting the chain continue and asking you the same question. Is there someone that you yeah. would love to hear an RG Metrics Buddy type podcast So this,
1: this is, uh, I obviously thought about this a little bit too. Um, and it's really tough because especially for me, especially um, there's so many people that I'd love to hear yeah. about. Uh, you being one of them, um, I would love the tables to be turned and kind of hear and learn more about you uh-huh. and make the second open dialogue. I think that would be really interesting. But um, uh, there's there's a lot of people, but uh, there is one person, and I don't want to make it a continue. I want to kind of go outside of the marketing team, but I really think Anna Kegler would be fascinating to, uh-huh. uh, to talk to. Um, and she probably uh, will try to physically harm me for uh, <laughs> suggesting it. But, um, but yeah, I just think she's a... Uh, Um, Really thoughtful, really interesting, but also has a really varied background and varied perspective in terms of how she came about things. And I sit next to her and I continue to learn interesting things every day. So that, in that sense, would be interesting to me. Great. Uh,
0: What am I not asking you about that I should be?
1: Uh, um, This has been answered a couple different ways in the recent podcast. And I actually, you know, uh, is that specifically like for you to refine questions in the future or just just like here's something you don't know about? Yeah, so it's a question that
0: I stole from when I interview people for jobs and I, I, I bet I asked you that when I interviewed you originally yeah. or when we originally spoke um, my intention with that is very often I view it as a softball and it's a version of asking like uh, what are, what do you want to highlight from your, what are the things that you came in here hoping to get an opportunity to talk about that my failure as an interview did not extract from you? So it's putting a little bit of the onus on you, but it also puts you in total control. So you're right. not gonna say, oh, about that time that I did that terrible <laughs> yeah. thing, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, you know, what's the thing that kind of maybe makes you, you, that if you're not feeling like you got to represent it, got gotcha, yeah. your shot.
1: Um, yeah, that's, I uh, I feel like I just talked, I, it's, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I I tend to feel particularly like I'm, I mean, I think I'm a pretty introverted guy, but uh, in one on one situations, I feel like I over talk. <laughs> in a situation like this, I feel like it's just like off the rails. That's um, what it's here for. So I think you got most of uh, the kind of things out of me. I don't, I, you know, I, I'm also, I think, one of those people that can go deeper on specific topics, kind of thing. I think we touched on. A lot of them. Um, yeah. At some point, I would love to talk to you more about your improv background and comedy, because the way with my writing and those kind of things, I think writing is you know the kind of th- and storytelling are really the things that I think I'm most passionate about, and I could go on forever about it. But uh,
0: I also wrote a terrible screenplay yes. that uh, <laughs> it is a, uh, it's a comedy. I don't know if it was a comedy, um, yeah. but maybe uh, we can trade off a screenplay, Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. we'll we'll, yeah. Uh, we'll put them in the code of silence. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, cool. be, yeah. I I think in terms of int- things I'm interested in and stuff like that, I feel like you uh, um, touched on a lot of it. I think the yeah the um, I, yeah yeah. Sorry.
0: Cool. <laughs> no. Uh, one last bonus question uh, that is super random, but uh, so my name is Robert Moore, and that is a super generic name, and I have encountered various troubles as a result of that. There, there are things that that makes life easy for I never have to worry about people spelling my name right yeah. when they're entering uh, into a system or whatever, but. Uh, the number of mix-ups that happen, the number of people with my name that are uh, doing other stuff out there, is enormous. Uh, your name is David Williams. We have a person here named David Wallace. We have a person here named Ryan Williams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, has your name being your name? Uh, been something that you view as uh, an advantage, or has it created any situations that uh, you know other people with a more unique name might not go through?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, in in general, like in life, not too many. I haven't had too many issues. I feel like there's the time, obviously, when someone's looking you up in some database and the David Wa- the things with logging into like or starting typing and having David Wallace like yeah. kind of come up. Like he, we've slacked a couple times because. He said the amount of times he's like started to log into something and it automatically—I don't know, like different stuff like that. Um, yeah. yeah, Ryan and I. It's funny. I think today in the elevator was the first time it really came up. Someone said Williams is and he referred to us as Williams Eye, uh, <laughs> like as we out. But uh, it doesn't—it doesn't, you know, cause too many mix-ups. But uh, but yeah, it is a fairly obviously generic name. Yeah, so. uh, my middle name this. <laughs> this could be the thing that maybe that uh, gets out that, it's, that I'm going to regret, but um, my middle name is Minto. Minto! <laughs> yes. M-I-N-T-O? Correct, yeah. So... Uh... So that, um, I think, fairly uh, you know, establishes kind of a unique... That is amazing. Um, what's the origin of that? Family name. Uh, uh-huh. A really interesting story but I, I, uh, <laughs> about an a, a uncle who actually worked on the Manhattan Project and was like this crazy inventor guy that was the Minto that I was named after. So, yeah, so Wally Minto, uh, what's funny is the story of how he was like told to me was basically, um, he, was, he, so he was my dad's uncle, um, but it was <laughs> essentially as a kid, it was... Uh, yeah, uh, my uncle discovered plutonium, and you're named <laughs> after him. Um, so there was times where I think I was in second and third grade, and I uh, like told people that yeah, my, yeah. I think my great uncle discovered plutonium. That's my middle name. It's after, um, and uh, and you know, in hindsight, like you, hear jokes about people talking yeah. about plutonium, but I genuinely remember saying that. Um, what uh, turned out to, to discovering was uh, so he basically was kind of this self. I think he graduated from Columbia as at, like, 16 or something like that, but then was kind of this, like, uh, lifelong inventor <laughs> of some kind. Um, if you look him up, you find this information where he invented something called the water wheel or this, like, Freon-powered wheel that, like, some people still use some aspect of for... Um, like uh, for creating energy of some kind so it's like uh, there's been like use of it in some way um, I think in places in like sub-Saharan Africa where they use this wheel yeah Um, but the more interesting thing is I don't know exactly what the whole plutonium or whatever connection was but there was some kind of uh um, discovery that he did make with some kind of certain chemicals that uh, got involved him on the Manhattan Project and um, I was just actually trying to pull up his obituary because if you find his obituary it gives the details of kind of how much time he spent out there working on it um, mm-hmm. in some fashion or another. So he's still kind of a mystery guy to me but uh, uh, it makes the, um, you know, uh, uh, hilarity of his last name uh, yeah. <laughs> a, little, uh, a little more palpable I guess what wow I, what is that um, have you as an adult talked to your uh, your dad about him were there interactions uh, when he was a kid or anything yeah like a, a little bit and um, and it, it was my my uncle so my dad's older brother is the one that has had more interactions so there's not, there's not much on him yeah he was kind of like this mystery character that I think uh, they saw every once in a while um, mm-hmm. and I think my uncle who was older than my dad had more interactions with him but I think he also was in Florida with uh, another uncle who had a uh, really kind of curious background. I think the rumors were yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, there's some curious uh, characters in that side of the family. But um, Excellent. but yeah, no, I don't have really any like good tangible stories other than uh, the sort of myth that he was and uh, related to my middle name.
0: Amazing. Uh, well, David Williams, you are not a fairly generic person. Uh, this has been an amazing, amazing uh, set of stories, and it's been great to learn some more about you. Uh, Thanks so much for listening in. Uh, I'm Bob Moore, and we'll talk to you next time on RJ Metrics Buddy Time.